Good morning. <clears throat> I want to welcome each one of you, especially glad for the family members of Brooke and Caden who are here. Thank you for being here. I'm sure it means a lot to them. Brooke and Caden, I've really enjoyed interacting with the two of you all uh, through instruction class, baptismal class, whatever you want to call it. And I'm excited that you've chosen to be baptized today. This morning I want to talk about the why, the who, the how, and the what of baptism. And then I want to turn to Ephesians to encourage you to live a life worthy of this calling. <clears throat> For the rest of you, what I have to say this morning applies to anyone who has made the commitment to follow Christ. So I want to think with you this morning about baptism. Why baptism? And I'm going to turn to Matthew 28. Very familiar verses, the end of Matthew, known as the Great Commission. I'm reading verses 18 to 20. <clears throat> Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. So Jesus commanded his disciples to go and make disciples, not just in Israel, but of all nations, all people groups, baptizing them, teaching them. So who should be baptized? There's two verses that I think of in Acts, in Acts 2.38, actually several places in Acts. Um, Peter said, repent and be baptized. So I think those who repent. And in Acts 8, 34 through 38, that here we have the uh, time when Philip is, goes and meets the eunuch traveling in a, the Ethiopian eunuch. He's traveling in the chariot, chariot, and he's reading in the book of Isaiah. He invites um, Philip to get up in the chariot with him to explain to him so he can understand what he's, what he's reading. Jumping in to the middle of the story in Acts 8, Verse 34, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning at this scripture, preached Jesus to him. Now as they went down the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the son of God. So he commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. From these passages, I would say baptism follows preaching Jesus 
repentance of my old way of life and believing Jesus is the Son of God who gave his life for me. <clears throat> this says that it should be an adult believer's baptism. Uh, an infant isn't able to understand that isn't able, it should be someone who, can, who is able to count the cost of commitment to Jesus. That brings us to the question, how to baptize? How should baptism happen? You would get uh, very differing answers depending what church you ask that question. in. Basically, there are two modes you Pouring and immersion. And the scripture doesn't specify how it should be done. And I believe we plan to do both here today. Both are valid modes of baptism, and neither one is better than the other. I think what is more important is the attitude of my heart and my obedience to the Lord Jesus. <clears throat> what is baptism? I'd like to look at a couple scriptures in thinking about that. I'm going to turn to Romans chapter 6. I'd like to read verses Chapter 6, reading verses 1 to 4, and then I'm jumping down to 11 to 13. Just in thinking about baptism. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death. That is that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Verse 11, Likewise you also reckon yourselves to, to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey, obey it in its lusts. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. But present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I have, do not let sin reign circled in my Bible. It's my choice. I choose if I will let it reign. Baptism is a public statement of your commitment to follow Jesus, to live a new life. Baptism is an outward symbol of what has already happened inside. <clears throat> In Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27, it says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ or have been clothed with Christ. When a Roman boy became a man, he would put away his children's clothing and he would wear the toga that the, the Roman man wore. It was distinct. You knew who was a man and who was a boy. He had, 
when he became a man and he wore the, the Roman adult male's toga, he had a new identity and new responsibilities as a man. And baptism is identifying yourself as belonging to Jesus Christ, doing that in a public way. You know, to this point, probably you're in, in your relationship with Christ, it's been very personal and probably pretty private. It's with your family or with a small group until you gave your testimony here two weeks ago. And thank you for being willing to do that. You took the step of publicly giving your testimony, of taking a stand with Jesus. And today, again, it's a public statement of your desire to follow Christ, and I want to affirm that. <clears throat> so baptism is identifying yourself as belonging to Jesus Christ. It's being clothed with Christ. I'm glad that in our church, baptism is connected to church membership. If you are making a public commitment to follow Jesus, then I think you should be part of and accountable to the local body of Christ. God never intended that we live the Christian life isolated from others. I realize there's a lot more that could be said about baptism, and I don't intend to do that this morning. Um, I want to turn to the book of Ephesians now, and in, in thinking about baptism, I've been thinking about Ephesians. The book of Ephesians is split into two distinct parts. There's chapters 1 through 3, and the, so the first half of Ephesians lists what God has done, the position of the Christian, or what God has done for us. Here's a, a quick overview of some of those things. We are adopted by God. We are redeemed. We have an inheritance. We have power. We have new life. We have God's grace. We've got citizenship in heaven. We have the love of Christ that Paul describes as passing all knowledge. So that's the first half, or the, the first half of the book of Ephesians is what God's done for us, and then we get to chapter 4, and there's a switch at chapter 4, verse 1, and in chapters 4 through 6, it's how a Christian should live in light of what God has done for us. Because of what God has done for us, here's how you live, and it affects, if you look through the rest of the book of Ephesians, it affects every area of life. It affects my job, it affects my family, it affects how I relate to people in church, how I relate to people outside of church, it, it affects everything. So where I'm jumping in this morning in the book of Ephesians is in the first part of Ephesians chapter 4, it's in the start of, how, of practically how to live in the light of what God has done for us. Reading Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> It helps if I turn there. Ephesians chapter 4, 
verses 1 through 3. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I therefore, whenever there's therefore, you look back and see what it's there for. Paul is looking back, I think, not just at what he said at the end of chapter 3, but looking back at the first half of Ephesians, looking back at Ephesians 1 through 3, and in light of what God has done, Therefore, or because of what God has done for you, you're urged to walk worthy. Notice Paul describes himself as the prisoner of the Lord. He saw himself as God's prisoner. He was in prison, imprisoned by the Roman Empire, but he saw God as in control. And he was serving God. He, he was living his life for him, and so he saw it as he's the prisoner of the Lord. He's under God's authority. You know, Paul was living a life that was worthy of what God had given him, what God had done for him. And so he, because of that, he could call others to do the same. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you, beseech in love, God is urging or imploring us to live for him. You know, in the Old Testament, God said, obey me and I will bless you. There was a clear connection to when, when you obey me, you will have physical blessings. In the New Testament, God says, I have already blessed you beyond what you can imagine. Will you obey me? So here God is saying, I, I urge you, or I implore you, to walk worthy. Worthy. Worthy is appropriately. Skevington Wood says the Greek word means bringing up the other beam of the scales, meaning there needs to be balance. What I believe needs to make a difference in my actions. My beliefs and my actions need to match. If I say I believe this, but I don't have, my actions don't match with that. Everything's off balance. My beliefs and my actions need to match. <clears throat> my life needs to reflect what I believe. I need to live my life considering who called me and what I've been given. That will affect all of my choices in every part of my life. While I recognize that I can never earn what I've been given, I want to live a life worthy of what I've been given. Recognizing who gave it. urge you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 
verses 11 and 12, speaking of a, thinking about a calling, as you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, Paul is saying to the, first Thess- to the Thessalonian church, as a father does his own children, that you would walk worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. God calls you into his own kingdom and glory. My calling is to serve the king of the universe. It's a high calling. My calling is to live in a manner worthy of my Savior, Jesus Christ, who suffered and he gave his life for me, for you, for everyone. My calling is to live in a manner that is fitting as an adopted daughter or son. That will affect how I relate to other people. Want to notice the next couple of verses, the next in verses two and three of chapter four in Ephesians. I want to notice five essential characteristics of a worthy life. First one is lowliness or humility depending what translation you're reading. Humility is an attitude. Jesus demonstrated humility, and he expects his, father, his followers to be humble. Let me, the story here by Watchman, that Watchman Nee told. In his commentary on Ephesians, Watchman Nee of China tells of a brother in South China, who had his rice field on a hill. During the growing season, he used a hand-worked water wheel to lift the water from the irrigation stream that ran by the base of the hill up to his field. His neighbor had two fields below his, and one night he made a hole in the dividing wall and drained out all the Christian's water down to his fields below them. The brother was distressed but he laboriously pumped water up into his own field, only to have the act of stealing repeated. This happened three or four times. At last, he consulted his Christian brethren. What should I do, he asked. I've tried to be patient and not retaliate. Isn't it right for me to confront him? The Christians prayed, and then one of them replied, If we only try to do the right thing, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something more than what is right. The Christian farmer was impressed with this advice. So the next day he went out and first pumped water for the two fields below his. Then after that, he worked throughout the afternoon to fill his own field. From that day on, the water stayed in his field. And in time, the neighbor, after making inquiries as to what caused him to behave in such a fashion, became a Christian. This is humility. It is refusing to insist on our rights and actually putting our neighbor's interests before our own. This is humility. The quote that I wrote in my Bible many years ago, I don't know who to credit with this. This is not original with me. Those who know God will be humble. Those who know themselves cannot be proud. 
Albert Einstein once said, a hundred times a day I remind myself that my inner and outer life depend on the labors of other men, living and dead, and that I must exert myself in order to give in the same measure as I have received and am receiving. If Albert Einstein needed to do that, I certainly do. Was recognizing we affect each other, we depend on each other, we build on what others do. <clears throat> Humility. Second characteristic is gentleness. Gentleness or meekness. The Romans and the Greeks considered humility and gentleness to be weak character traits. I ask you, is meekness weakness? Greeks and Romans thought so. Moses was meek, but he was willing to stand before Pharaoh and say, this is what the Lord says. Let my people go. That doesn't sound like weakness. Jesus was meek and lowly of heart. But Jesus wasn't weak. Meekness is not weakness. It is power under control. In the Greek language, this same word for meekness or gentleness was used to describe a colt that had been broken so that you could ride it. It was used to describe a soft wind. Both of these are power, but it's power under control. Humility is the attitude. Gentleness is the action. These characteristics are, are paired. Next is long-suffering or patience. Literally means long-tempered. Reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, Love is not easily provoked. Love suffers long and is kind. Quoting Skevington Wood again, Long-suffering can mean steadfastness in the endurance of suffering, but more often in the New Testament, it describes a reluctance to avenge wrongs. Oops. Need the other paper. The story on patience here. It takes time to learn patience. And a man once came to a, a pastor and he said, Please pray for me. I need patience. I'm really lacking in patience, and I, I wish that you would pray for me. The pastor said, sure, I'll pray for you right now. He put his hand on him and started praying. He said, Lord, Lord, please send great tribulation to this man. And the man got disturbed, and he put his hand out, and he said, no, you don't understand. I, I didn't ask for that. I asked for patience. And the pastor said, oh, I heard what you said. But haven't you read Romans 5, 3? And not only so, but we glory in tribulation also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience. It means that we acquire patience through the things that we suffer. 
And so I'm praying that God would send tribulations to you so you, do, you develop patience. When's the last time you prayed for tribulation, for troubles? For <laughs> I can't say that I do that, but, you know, looking back, God uses those things to develop character in us. The fourth characteristic is bearing with one another in love or forbearance. It's literally to hold them up. This one relates specifically to trials we have as a result of uncharitable conduct toward us by other Christians. That's a quote from James Montgomery Boyce. The long-suffering is anyone. This one is, directly relates to other Christians. And we're to put up with their faults and idiosyncrasies knowing I have them too. We all do. All four of these characteristics are aspects of love. And if they sound like the fruit of the Spirit, they are. Last one is, the fifth one is endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Endeavoring, in the Greek, means making every diligent effort. <laughs> Not some diligent effort, but making every diligent effort. It's putting yourself into it. And the Greek verb suggests difficulty and a resolute determination to overcome that difficulty. This assumes three things. One, there already is God-given unity of the Spirit. God has given unity of the Spirit. Two, it is every Christian's job to maintain that unity of the Spirit. And three, it won't always be easy. It assumes that it will be difficult at times, but every Christian's job is to make every effort to maintain that unity of the Spirit, a God-given unity. Warren Wiersbe said, the spiritual unity of a home, a Sunday school class, or a church is the responsibility of each person involved, and the job never ends. If there isn't humility, gentleness, long-suffering, and bearing with one another, there probably won't be much unity either. The good thing is God makes it possible for every Christian to live a worthy life as we walk by the Spirit. Galatians. On my own, it's impossible. The work of the Spirit in my heart is the key to living a worthy life. It's God's work in me as I cooperate with Him, as I yield to Him. God can develop these character traits in me. It is His work. Brooke and Caden, I want to affirm your decision to be baptized here today. I hope that this experience is one that you will look back to repeatedly throughout your life. 
and when you stumble into sin, because that happens to all of us, then look back to the commitment you were making today. And just as you originally came to Jesus, repent, accept his forgiveness, and continue on with Jesus. God bless you.